0: Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Life, how precious the church really is. It's kind of one of those you never miss the the water till the well runs dry sort of situations, and it seems like the well may be dry for a little bit. You gathering with the people of God, not a real possibility. How about this? Why don't you take some some time in your personal time with the Lord to give thanks? For his church, and to ask that he'll hasten the day that we can meet together again. As the worship team and I were talking this morning, uh, there was there was some real Thanksgiving. Tom who was the first one to speak it. Just said, "I'm really thankful that I get to be in church today, and I'm grateful for that too." The the church is the people of God gathered. Fortunately, the church is also the people of God scattered. So when persecution has scattered the, the, the followers of Jesus, they don't have to worry about, oh, no, I'm no longer a part of the church. Yes, you are by God's Holy Spirit. And as the church is scattered today, it's not by persecution. It's because we're all being uh, good citizens and doing our very best to help our neighbors to keep from spreading the infection. You can also count that while the Lord is here with us, those few of us in the sanctuary today, he is also right there with you. I don't know how he does it, but frankly, I didn't know how he did it before Facebook either. Yeah, he's he's been with his people all the time. So the church is God's people when we're gathered. We the church is God's people when we scatter intentionally when we go out there to do the mission in the world and the church is also the people of God scattered when forced to. The good news is that though there's some things happening in terms of public health, the church is still alive and well today. Hey America, we may get the healthiest version of church we've ever seen in the course of our history because God's people are out there doing the work and then waiting for the day that we can gather together again. Let's do this. Let's agree that we will together miss the gathering of God's people. It's important that we miss it, like not show up. That's important now. It's also important that we don't just settle into a quote new normal. And, and see that, oh, well, yeah, I can still kind of connect this way and and uh, form what really will become a bad habit in our lives. Let's make sure that we also save a place in our hearts for the gathering of God's people and agree that we will miss that, that we will miss one another. But let's also make sure that we, that we don't miss out on connecting in the ways that we can. Um, today, as we uh, look at the Scriptures, I'm, I'm reminded of how relevant the Bible is. I often hear people, people a lot of times will say to, to pastors, folks who don't share our faith, you know, the Bible can't possibly be relevant. It's an ancient book that was written by primitive people who, who still baptized things like racial prejudice and, and polygamy and slavery. And they're not wrong about the, the Bible kind of giving those things a pass. That's something we'll have to talk about on another day. But to jump from there to say that the Bible is irrelevant to the world today, I could not disagree more. And I think we're going to find out about that today as we take a look at the Scriptures. So far this year, I've been preaching from the book of Acts until, well, this present craziness. And last week, we took a little departure from the book of Acts. We're just going to put the book of Acts on hold for a little bit, though today's message really will kind of dovetail back in with with what we've been, been talking about. I grew up in Cold War America, and I heard often when I was a kid about the American Dream. The American Dream was really kind of this idea that that really uh, became a, a catchphrase on the lips of many people uh, immediately following World War II, in that boom that happened in our culture and in our society following the war. Both the baby boom and the, the great industrial boom that took place, and then innovation and technology Uh, This country, in terms of uh, growth and change, it was on fire. And for the most part, that felt good to everyone. And for the first time in American history, it seemed like the American dream, quote unquote, was really accessible to almost everyone. The American dream in those days was defined in the 40s, 50s, was defined really as having basically three elements. It was the idea that a person could get married. Remember, during the war, there were a lot of people who lost spouses and so there were a lot of people who lived in great sorrow but this notion that now the war's over we're, we're hopefully doing you know putting an end to the whole idea of world war but this idea that we would live in peace and and could get married was was the first first part of that the second was the idea that we could then have children. And uh, medicine was changing things so that uh, infertile couples now had chances to to have kids. And and all the medical technological improvements were increasing um, uh, infant survival rate and all of those things. So it seemed like that too was accessible to people. And then this third element of the American dream when it first uh, kind of burst on the scene in the post-war boom was the idea that everyone could own a modest home. Okay, so those three things, the American dream. I can get married, I can have a family, and we can live in a home that is our own. If you drive around your town, if you drive around your city, and you find homes that were built in the late 40s and the 1950s, they were about half the size of the average home in America today. It was a modest home, but it, the, the belief was that everybody, if they worked hard enough, could one day own one of those for themselves. That was the American dream back in the day. What has happened to the American dream? Well, a whole lot of prosperity financially is one of the things that happened. So that, so that one element of the American dream—that idea that I could own a modest home—started changing into this notion that I could maybe own more than one modest home, or or a home that ain't so modest. It's it's actually got extra room, and and, and and things like a bonus room, and a spare bedroom, and a second car garage, right? The, that idea of prosperity kind of pushed that, that house thing into another realm. So that by the time we get to the place that we are today in 2020, or maybe where we were just a few weeks ago anyway, uh, the American dream has really come to mean a few different things than it was than it did originally. The first is is this that bottom step. I would say the assumption of most people is that I can be comfortable. Comfort wasn't really part of the American dream before. It was I was going to have to hustle. I was going to have to work hard. I was going to have to push hard. But by golly, we could get there. Today, the assumption is and the hope is that everybody can be comfortable. Second step is this, part of the American dream today is that not only can I be comfortable, but I'll have some luxury in my life, and most of us will not admit when we have luxuries. We will say, we'll, we'll just use other words for them, because luxury, because we still remember those, those roots of the American dream, luxury seems like, well, nobody deserves it, but I think I deserve fill in the blank. And that luxury many times takes the form of some things that were never accessible even 30, 40 years ago, like, like the chance to own a, a second home, a cabin as we call it in the West, a vacation home, or the notion that we could travel all over the country or all over the world taking vacations. Hey, folks, that's luxury. The notion that we could, that we could retire while we are still strong and healthy and maybe live 30 more years not having to work and still have sufficient income for us to sustain the kind of life and the luxuries that we talked about. That has become part of the American dream. But beyond that, this third step of the American dream as I see it today, comfort, luxury, and then this notion of I will also have an ever-building wealth. My portfolio, my retirement, those things will just continue to grow and grow and grow And that's the assumption of the American dream is that I will one day get to the place not where I can just own my own little home, but that I can live in comfort and luxury and beyond that, have an ever-building wealth that I can't outspend so that I become one of those people who leaves legacy kind of wealth to my children. There's the American dream today. How's that holding up so far, 2020? I mean, you're watching the markets like I am, oh yeah, sinking like a stone, just mass craziness. Every little blurb on the news makes the market do this or do this, and sometimes it'll do this and this and this and this, all in the same day, right? It's all over the place. Suddenly, the assumption that I can have ever-building wealth is being challenged, So we've got this American dream from back in the day that I could get married, that I could have some children, and I could one day own a modest home in which my family would live. has become this other thing that says, I have a right to live in comfort. Beyond that, I will have some luxuries, and I hope that those are widespread enough that they don't seem luxurious anymore, and I can feel justified in having those things. And beyond that, I can build extravagant kind of wealth that will take care of my family for generations. I wonder if the Scriptures... Not have anything to say about that i don't wonder I know <laughs> that's why I want to talk to you about this today is because I have read the scriptures and they 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 speak to us a little bit about this. There is a warning that the Scriptures speak to us. And we're going to take a look up at the screen right now. We're going to be reading from a letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was this young pastor. And after a while, he wasn't young and he wasn't a pastor. He became a bishop over the entire region of Ephesus, which is the capital city in what is today uh, modern-day Turkey. In the first 30 years of Timothy's ministry, Ephesus went from being a place that was populated with pagan temples, and within 30 years, the temples were empty because virtually everyone in the area of Ephesus had become followers of Jesus Christ under this young man's effective ministry. When he was very young and first getting started as a pastor, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to him. We're reading today from 1 Timothy chapter 6. So, Luke, can you get me that uh, next slide? Listen to this. Godly, it's uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with verse 6, I think. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Did you see there's no footnote there? No plus? All these other things, yeah. Those who want to get rich, he warns us, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. This is the word of the Lord. As I've been watching the news and, you know, watching my neighbors and, frankly, watching my own heart respond to the coronavirus and all of the restrictions on being together and restrictions on travel and then watching what's happening in terms of commerce i was reminded of this letter to the apostle paul whenever i hear this passage it does something in my heart because i was once a young man preparing for pastoral ministry and we were often driven right back to these letters to timothy to help shape our character and shape our understanding of who we would be as ministers of the gospel of jesus And when I stood before a great gathering of people and the authorities in the church were there to ordain me, to tell me that they trusted me to do ministry for the rest of my life in the name of Jesus, I was told these same things and part of this passage was read to me. And so this this passage is instructive and needs to be for all of us. I say, as I titled the sermon, God's dream for the outbreak and always is not the American dream. It's this word from long, long, long ago that tells us how we can operate day in, in and day out and maybe is a corrective word to us, the followers of Jesus during the outbreak. Here's uh, Here's one word from it that we really need to just deal with and it's this word that desiring wealth is a trap. Now, I've I've heard Christians talk about this ad nauseum, and as soon as this passage is read, there's a knee-jerk reaction among American Christians to say, well, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy as long as you X, or as long as you don't X. And I'll say that the passage doesn't say that having wealth makes a person evil, but it does tell us that desiring wealth is a test and often functions like a trap in our lives. Paul even went so far as to say, I have seen people who have, because of their desire to get wealthy, fallen away from the faith altogether. Listen, I know a lot of Christians who don't even believe a person can fall away from the faith no matter what. But the Apostle Paul said, there are people who just because of their love of money have fallen away from the faith, made shipwreck of the faith. Desiring wealth, falling in love with it, is a trap. It's a a seed that gets planted in our lives, that seed of desire. And and choosing that desire and choosing to nourish it is like planting a seed in your heart that will eventually grow something. If you plant a desire for wealth in your heart and move that up your priority chain to to one of your, your top handful of values, trust me, you will become a very good gardener. You will grow something that will produce abundant fruit in your life. And the Apostle Paul said that it would be evil fruit. That the desire for that kind of builds evil into a person's heart. And then that becomes the very reason that many people quit trusting God. When I was uh, in, in college preparing for pastoral ministry, I went to college in what at the time was the third wealthiest uh, county in the nation in, in per capita income. There was one over on the East Coast and one out in Beverly Hills, and then where I lived in the in the Midwest, where I went to college. And and I cut my teeth in ministry working at the Kansas City Rescue Mission among the homeless and the addicted. And I had to drive past all these wealthy, wealthy, wealthy homes and people. And it interested me how many times the poor people that I that I worked with frequently had a very real hunger for God and the community in which we we lived and and took our education and our preparation for ministry you 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 had to beg people to give God a moment a moment of their attention let alone of their affection it's something that I remember to this day and something I have to keep telling myself because I make more money than I used to I make. Uh, I'm very grateful for how this this church, you know, pays me and takes care of my family. I never, never dreamed as a kid that that you know I'd make more money than my dad. <laughs> my dad never made more than thirteen dollars an hour in his life. Um, my my kids make that much, you know, pouring coffee these days. But I have to look at this whole thing and say, Cliff, you better you better take a look at this passage. When you take a look at this passage, don't assume that the rich people don't assume the definition as all of us usually do. Rich people is people who make more than me, right? Isn't that how we usually, do you know anybody who will just look you in the eye and say, I am rich, man, I'm rich. Well, Rich Kennedy sits right there. But uh, do you know anybody who says, listen, you've got to get this. I'm super wealthy. I am so wealthy. I'm so rich. Nobody admits it because everybody assumes what I have is enough. And anybody who makes more than me or has more than me, those are the rich people, one that people are, can be justifiably jealous of, and two, that all of these passages in the Bible that talk about be careful, rich people are pointed toward and i 'm not telling you anything when I tell you that if you 're an american you 're in the top one percent in the world, okay this word is spoken not to the rich paul wasn 't writing to a rich man; he was writing. To Timothy, a young pastor, and he speaks, first of all, this word of warning to him, a poor man Be careful that you, the poor, do not fall in love with money, because if you fall in love with money, it's gonna grow something in your life that turns into evil. But he also then gave us some instructions for, uh, gave uh, Timothy some instructions for how to teach the people in his church, and particularly the folks who did have some financial means. And that is most of us who are watching today. We have some financial means, and so it's important for us to take a look at this passage from this irrelevant, outdated, ancient, primitive book, right? And take a look and see how it might apply to our lives today. I maintain that the American dream was never God's dream, the old version or the new version. But God has had a dream for his people for a very long time, and it's, uh, it's described by what we just read in First Timothy chapter 6. I want you to take a look at the screen right here and just follow me from the bottom step. This, I think, might be God's dream for us. You remember, uh, if you've been following along with us th- so far this year, when we were studying the book of Acts, and we were at the end of chapter 1, where, uh, where Luke wrote about God decisions versus good decisions, That was the title of the sermon, Good Decision Versus God Decisions, when we talked about how the apostles, not knowing what to do, said, "Uh, we have to replace Judas, we've got to get us another apostle, and without any leading from God, they said, "Uh, have an election, And they chose a a guy who probably was a good guy because he met certain criteria. He'd he'd been with the apostles through all the hard stuff thus far. He'd been with them and Jesus. This guy had apparently been one of those people who pulled up stakes and followed Jesus wherever he went. He's one of the guys who, uh, after the whole crucifixion and resurrection thing. He he sorted all of that out in his mind and said, I'm still a follower of Jesus. His name was Matthias, and he he then was given that position of authority in the church as the church did its best to make a good decision. But they made that good decision. All the decisions they could make were only good decisions because they had reason and tradition to guide them, but they didn't have God's Holy Spirit living within them. We get to Acts chapter 2. We read about God giving His Holy Spirit to every person who will seek Him, who believes in Him, and will ask His Spirit to come live in us. We receive God's Holy Spirit, and it's possible for us then to not just make good decisions. We're not limited to just good decisions. We can actually seek the wisdom of God in the Scriptures and by His Holy Spirit and make some God decisions, some, some decisions based on revealed truth, the Lord Himself leading us. I think is if we look at this passage today and we look at God's dream for us, it's actually possible for the people of God to quit being more American than Christian. I think it's actually possible for us to live into God's dream for his people. Let's take a look at the elements of it. The first is this. I think it's important that we notice our blessings. Have you been watching the markets this last week? Have you been noticing how much less money you have? Have you been uh, calculating that out? Oh, no, now I have to work two more years or six more months or three more years in order to be able to retire. Listen, that's normal. It's normal. But I wonder at the same time, have you been noticing God's blessings in your life? My uh, the, the best money guy that I know says nobody lost any money in, in these last few weeks unless they sold, right? And if, you, if you bought high and sold low, that's not a good retirement plan. But this isn't about us um, keeping an ever-watchful eye on the markets to make sure that we can have an ever-building wealth. I think that God's dream for his people wasn't to always see how much you could make. God's dream for his people was that we would live always... Um, aware of how good he has been to us and how good our lives are right now. His goodness to me is seen in many ways today. Uh, before the whole thing happened with the coronavirus, I was, I was able just through normal daily life to fill up my freezer with food from, you know, our garden from last year and I hunt and fish and, and uh, I've got some beef in there and whatever else Laura has bought I didn't have to panic by. Just by living my normal day-to-day life, my freezer's full. And so I sit here today without worry because God has already provided my daily bread well out in front of me. I should notice that. And I should focus on that instead of focusing on what I do not have. Have you noticed your blessings in the middle of, um, of a plummeting market? It would be a good idea if you instead of uh, just admitting i have i 'm blessed I've, I have blessings hashtag blessed that you would actually take some time to write a list of your blessings. have you ever done that if you will put pencil to paper and write down every good thing in your life that you can think of you 'll be busy for a while and at the end of it you'll have an amazing testimony to the goodness of God that can encourage your heart as you live into God's dream instead of the American dream. You know, if you notice your blessings, you should also uh, give thanks for them. I think I mentioned in last week's message, there's a difference between being grateful and giving thanks. Being grateful is me just feeling good about all the, the fullness, all the goodness that I have. But if Laura continues to make wonderful meals for me that leave me content and satisfied and and picking up a few pounds as I go and I never say thankful, I get all the blessedness of the blessings, and Laura doesn't get any of it. I think it's very important for the people of God, when we do take stock and take, take notice of his blessings in our lives, that we then, instead of just enjoying that in gratitude, that we then give thanks to God. That's a significant part of the singing worship tradition among God's people, is that we give thanks to him for all of his goodness. Maybe you'll want to do that this week after you pen your list of blessings, you find a song that expresses that, or you just take some time to tell the Lord thank you. After you build that list, maybe a thank you prayer for each one of those things as you work your way through the week. The next step, I think, in God's dream for us is this. Uh, we found it in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, I think all of this whole passage kind of orbits around this one verse godliness with contentment is great gain gain that's the american dream right that's the american dream that we that that we had in its in its genesis this idea that i don't yet have a, a spouse but i will i don't yet have kids but i'll gain them i don't yet own a home but i one day will Gain has become the whole thing of the modern day American dream. I want to, I'm, I don't want to live on just enough. I want to live comfortable. I want to gain comfort. Beyond that, I want to gain the luxuries that, that formerly only wealthy people had second cars, third cars, second homes, uh, the ability to travel the world. Um, how about having, I have a phone in my pocket that's worth like a thousand bucks. That's a luxury. And I wanted it. I wanted. I had a phone that did oh, basically everything this one does. But you know what? I got my eyes off the prize and I wanted more. I wanted gain. And I too have uh, taken a look at the markets in the last few days. Instead of being content. Contentment. Let me talk to you about contentment for just a moment. Contentment is, uh, is, is two things. It's first a trust that God knows what I really need and has or will provide it. Okay, It's a trust that God knows what I really need and that he has already provided it or will provide it. That's the first part of contentment. Contentment has a second part to it. It's a decision that I make to give thanks and to sometimes hem in my desires. Now, I know there's also a passage that says God will give you the desires of your heart, but that should scare you every bit as much as it excites you because sometimes your heart doesn't want good things. But contentment is trusting that God has or will provide everything that I need and me choosing to be happy and pleased with that rather than always desiring more, always desiring gain. You know, if I, if I get to the place of contentment, I can still get more. I can still gain if God brings it to me, if God provides opportunities, right? But contentment is the business of trusting God that he has or will provide for me all that I need and me choosing to be happy with that. But the verse said, godliness with contentment is great gain. So let me ask you a question today. When you're being honest with yourself, do you want more than you currently have? I I, I do. Uh, There are times when I'm very content and there's times when I want more. Let me ask you, being honest, do you want more today? You can have it. If you put godliness and contentment together, let me unpack that for you. Godliness. Oh, man, are you telling me that I suddenly have to have this long list of moral rules that I keep and that somehow me keeping all of the rules and being content only with what I have today, that that is quote-unquote gain? Nope, that's not what I'm saying. I think that if we look at these verses that we just read, we'll come to understand what the godliness is that Paul was telling Timothy to teach to his people. And it's found in the, the latter half of the passage that we read, uh, let me let me find it here. I'm looking at First Timothy chapter six. Here we go. Verse seventeen. He says, "Command those who are rich." We've already established we're one percenters. All of us in the world, in in America, are one percenters to the rest of the world. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain right it's so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share I'm going to read verse 18 again command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Now listen, the way that you get rich with money is you take it. You may, it's important that you take it fairly and according to you know, uh, legal and honest practices, but getting wealthy is in, financially is taking money. But the Apostle Paul tells us that you can be rich in good deeds by giving them away. It's, it's in the giving. It's in the, the pouring out it's in the doing that I find myself, my heart, my experience of life enriched. It's the one thing in this world where you can give it away and you've got more than you started with. He says, be rich in good deeds, be generous, and be willing to share. The Apostle Paul has just written about this whole thing of uh, people falling in love with money, where they're always trying to take it from other people, where where they're trusting it instead of God, and and it plants this seed of evil that grows up in their lives, and now they suddenly become willing to do almost anything or a lot of things that they wouldn't have done before just to get a little bit more. The godliness that he instructs uh, the, the followers of Jesus to participate in and to, to pair up with contentment is the business of being generous and sharing with other people oh that 's how the bible 's relevant for today. Have you been to Costco? Have you seen the posts from the grocery stores where people ran in there and just took panicked and said, "I want to get this before anyone else does We have a, a friend who works at our local Costco over in Clarkston, Washington. Laura and I went in there late one night this week because we just didn't want to be part of the, the mayhem. And uh, he was in there working hard. Alex, I love and appreciate your brother. You've been serving people really well this week. He was in there scrubbing down every inch of the store, and I just stopped him and said, Alex, how are you doing? He goes, pretty tired, but doing pretty well. I said, are people treating you good? He said, well you know, it's half and half. It's people pointing fingers and blaming because they're, they're worried and they're afraid, and I get that. He said, uh, most people are good to us. He said, there was one fist fight, though. A fist fight? Yeah, toilet paper. He said, two people just flat duked it out in the middle of, the, of, of our local Costco for toilet paper, while somebody else grabbed it out of their cart and ran to the checkout. Not an ounce of generosity in there, is there? No, it's, I, I, I'm, I, I mean, my guess is that those folks probably two weeks ago would, would never have been the kind of folks that, that would have been in a fistfight at Costco. But suddenly, I've got to have before other people get. I have to have instead of other people having, has changed, uh, changed their very character and who they are, how they live in this world. There can't be contentment with this relentless desire for more. So the Apostle Paul gives us this step to real peace right now. The kind of godliness that says, you know what, I've watched God provide for my family. Have you taken a look over your shoulder and seen how it is that God has provided for you and your family in the past? Can you look back to some times in your life when the circumstances weren't real favorable but somehow there was enough food? Do you have one of those stories? I've I've heard... Thousands of these stories from followers of Jesus of how the we did the math and the budget didn't work. The ends wouldn't meet, but somehow God provided. I've got a bunch of those stories in my life. Those stories are the evidence of the goodness of a God who said he either has already provided or will provide in time. If we trust that, we move the direction of generosity, and we've got enough room in our hearts and in our minds to do it. You see, I can give to other people, even if it means that I won't have enough for the long haul. I, I can put myself in a position of needing God to come through again if I really trust that he will. It's possible for people who aren't wealthy, who aren't hoarding. It's it's possible for people who live paycheck to paycheck. To become generous if we really trust that God has or will provide for us in time. The Apostle Paul was not telling us, oh, just give everything you have away. The early church tried that in Jerusalem. And within a few years, the Apostle Paul was making a trip all around the Mediterranean world trying to talk the other Christians into giving an offering to help support the people in Jerusalem who'd become completely impoverished. He isn't telling us, give away everything that you have. But he is coaching in us a trust in God that he has or will provide enough. Me deciding that enough is enough for me to be happy and generous. That out of what God has provided for me, I will share with other people. I think God's dream for his people has been all along is during the coronavirus outbreak and will be until the end of time that we notice our blessings that we instead of what we lack that we actually give thanks instead of just enjoying those blessings that we decide that we will trust God and and let our hearts really believe that enough for now is enough for now Move beyond that to the place, and by the help of his Holy Spirit, we go to the place of generosity. How can we put it to practice? Listen, no more panic buying. I mean, isn't that the first application? Just no more panic buying. Don't just run as soon as you hear the next shipment of whatever has arrived at the grocery store. Go stand on a line that's 180 people long so that you can go in and get more. I talked to a person this week whose basement is full of toilet paper. No more, no more panic buying. Followers of Jesus, say it with me, no more panic buying, right? That's the, that's the first way that we can, that, that's, the, that's the first rung on the ladder. That's the low-hanging fruit. It's the easy way to begin to practice the business of godliness and contentment is that we don't, uh, we don't panic buy. The, I think a second step might be this, and this is between you and the Lord. I'm not telling you you have to do this. I'm just saying I'm going to give you a possible step. Why don't you ask the Lord if he wants you to do this? Maybe if you did a little bit of that, a little bit more than stocking up, how about you just find somebody who needs a little of what you have a lot of and you decide that you're going to undo what you did before by taking that to somebody who needs it. I'm going to tell you some specific ways you can do that. Uh, In our town, in our valley, Family Promise is an organization that helps homeless people end the cycle of poverty and homelessness. They need toilet paper and hygiene items. They need diapers and wipes so that they can help young parents take care of their children. Life Choices Clinic is an uh, abortion alternative health care provider for young women, uh, young pregnant women who are at risk. It takes care of women and children and young dads too and it it provides diapers and wipes and formula maybe maybe you grabbed some of those things and you could take just one of whatever one unit of whatever over to one of those two places if you're watching this from elsewhere there's some place in your town where poor people gather and maybe you could take a little bit of what you have a lot of and share it with people we also we have a food bank there's a food bank in your town too I bet they take unopened donations of most things that can be wiped down and sanitized these days. And you know what? You can even do it yourself. There's there, there are parts of town. There are people that you know. There are kids that go to school with your kids that, you know, their families have a hard time getting by during the good times. And you might be able to take um, some of your panic purchases and uh, undo what you did and bless somebody else. But most of us are people who really do live from one paycheck to the next. We don't have an extravagant abundance. We didn't go out and panic by. Maybe the way for us to live into this is to ask God's Holy Spirit to give us enough faith, enough real trust that he has or will provide for us, that we take something that we need in the here and now, and we sow that thing into the kingdom and into into the, the need in somebody else's life. You watch God come through for you. The American dream, I'm not saying it was evil to want to get married and to have kids and to own a modest home. I just don't think that that was ever God's dream. God's dream was that his people would know when enough is enough, wouldn't desire beyond that, would accept it if he brought it to them, but then would take out of what he has provided, whether it's extra or not, and share with others, continually putting ourselves back in the place of dependence upon God. It's his dream for us to have our hearts shaped like that and for him to then have the opportunities that creates to come through for us again and again and again and to build that trust and that love that nurtures intimacy between us and him. Friends, I want to thank you for your time today, for um, gathering with us in the way that we gathered electronically today. I'm going to say thank you to the uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Hey, I'm the tenth person here. We hit the number right on, right. I mean, just hit the nail on the head. I want to thank the nine people who gathered here. I want to remind you that you're the church. This building isn't. You're the church. And the church is the people of God, whether gathered or scattered. When we gather, Jesus says, I'm right there in the midst of them. And when we scatter, he says, I'll send my Holy Spirit with you so that you'll be able to do all the things that I've taught you. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are here with us. You've been with us here today. You received the praise that Kyle led and that the people offered in their homes. We've we've heard from your word. And we're trusting that your Holy Spirit now is just gonna tell us how to live it. We've got a few suggestions, but There'd be something way better than Cliff's suggestions. It'd be if, as we just go now living life open to you, that your Holy Spirit would say, there's the person I want you to help. There's the item in your home I want you to give away. There's the, uh, uh, arrest that, that tendency to panic and, and to hoard. We're going to count on your Holy Spirit to whisper those things to us. We will be faithful because you're faithful. We praise you for that. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we'll be back uh, Wednesday evening with the live stream of The Road Back to You. We'll be back next week for morning worship. And I'll probably say hello to you a few times during the week with uh, with some devotional practices and some prayer time. Grace and peace to you today. Bye-bye.